there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Shouldn't you be at work? Katana. Oh, look at that pass. And he got Irwin in again. Oh, that's brilliant. Dennis Irwin has scored. Sharp against Coldhouse. What a good turn by Sharp. Oh, let's get back there. Ryan Roy has headed for his interlead. Robert Wilkins is through and goal. He's past Parker. Schmeichel's come. He chipped him. Oh, but Irwin's cleared it off the line. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, and he hasn't. No. Hello and welcome back to Quickly Kevin. Will he score? It's Series 11, Episode 2. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me, as always, Josh Widdicombe. Hello. And this boy knocks me out. Welcome back, Michael Marden. Hello. Welcome to episode two of uh, what I mean, what an opening duo, Reed and Sharp, both absolute legends. How long have we been chasing Lee Sharp? Years. It's been years. And it turned out that actually, when we got in contact with him, it was really easy. <laughs> but that is that sets a tone for this series that we are going to plow through because we have some more great '90s names. But should we just get on with the '90s o'clock news? From the headquarters of IGN, News at 10, with Chris Scull. Two bits of news for you this week. Is Alan Sugar thick? Yes. And Dennis Irwin, do we need to revise our opinion? Oh, Michael's bristling already, I can imagine. Well, it depends It depends what your opinion is in the first instance. Oh, well, it's, 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 uh, second I think everyone's story. got the same uh, opinion of Dennis Irwin. Great pro, great pro. <laughs> Never less than an 8 out of 10. Modern wing back before they're even a thing. Wand of a left foot. Also, I'm going to say this about Dennis Irwin. The player of the Manchester United 90s team that I probably think about the least. Is Dennis Irwin like the kind of the substitute teacher of that whole United side? Do you know what he, he never like, not. No, no, wash your mouth out now. He's never quite... <laughs> you know what, like, it's always surprising he's there. Yeah, but he I think he's still there like, in 99. He was still there in 99. That's how good he is. He's more like a member of a band. He's, he's like Charlie Watts, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's like Charlie Watts drumming away at the back. Everyone who wants to appear cool says that Charlie Watts is their favourite member of the yeah. Rolling Stones. 
he is the he is the Jason Orange of the United back four. I would love a um, a stats on how many Irwin three shirts were sold between ninety two and ninety nine in the Manchester United Superstore. One, one. Anyway, I can tell you, one. Definitely. <laughs> the only re- reason someone might get Irwin three is because it's cheap. But when you got Berg knocking around, like <laughs> there's better value to be had. Yeah. Do you think more people bought Berg shirts than Irwin shirts? No, surely not. Imagine right, if you on, saw... Get on with Alan Sugar. Get on with Alan Sugar. I can't let this go. We're coming back to this. <laughs> yeah, we are, because it's the second piece of news. Uh, can I just ask our listeners, have you ever ser- seen an Irwin 3 shirt in the wild that wasn't sported by Dennis Irwin? Top story today is, is Alan Sugar thick? Can you Have you seen this tweet he's tweeted? So Alan no. Sugar's tweeted this... You see this picture of, a moon, of the moon... It's a clearly yeah. a fake CGI. And Alan Sugar has tweeted going, the moon rising in the Ar- he spelled Arctic wrong. The Artis circle between Russia and Canada. It's, can you say this? This is what he's claiming is the moon rising. Oh, Alan, right, Sugar is CGI. A, Alan Sugar is a learned man. Well, I don't think Alan Sugar is a learned man. I think Alan Sugar's many things, but learned is not what you call him, <laughs> is it? We'll put this on our Instagram. We'll put it on our Instagram. It's so unbelievable like no one could believe the it's the moon rising over the horizon in what he claims is the rt circle and the moon is enormous it would take something like 30 percent of the sky i'm gonna say it he's done worse on twitter chris <laughs> <laughs> he runs amstrad he's seen as like a, a, tra- a business amstrad. trailblazer he, he signed jürgen klinsman how I can't marry that Alan Sugar with this guy. No, I know. He's a kind of flawed genius, isn't he? I know. Talk your flawed geniuses. <laughs> Should we move on to Dennis Irwin? <laughs> okay. We've had a tweet in, and uh, I think, uh, you know what? And I thought y- you could be onto something here. So, uh, BD, Neb D out there on Twitter messaged me and said, Between this and the Zola goal at Stanford Bridge, can we retrospectively say that Irwin used to get turned inside out all the time, a la Schmeichel being chipped? Here's Lars Bohinen, here's Lars Bohinen at Old Trafford against, against United. I don't know if you can see this. Just look yeah. at Irwin. Irwin going one way then the other again and again again and again oh, and then Lars Bohinen slots in and then you think about that Zola one he brings up again Irwin's going one way or the other it is the next the new Schmeichel getting chipped is Irwin getting turned inside out it seems like it was happening all the time no, Michael it, it doesn't seem like it was happening all the time <laughs> you've given two examples he and I quote Alex Ferguson, a man who knows a little bit more about football than us, pound for pound, my greatest ever signing. That's how highly he regarded Dennis Irwin. So do you know what? I'm going to stop this cheap, cheap, trash, <laughs> trash talking, this slow decimation of the back five of Manchester United in the 90s, which Schmeichel, I'll let it go. We have all been a part of the uh, demolition of Steve Bruce's legacy through his, uh, you know, his novels, his writing career. Yeah. But... If you're coming for Irwin and Pallister, apps absolutely not. <laughs> okay, so let me say... Could I just say on that Schmeichel thing? Uh, I didn't want to read it out, so I'll just... In passing, I can't remember who sent it, but we did get an email. Someone said there's a... The official Premier League account put out a top 10 chips in the history of the Premier League, and three of them were past Peter Schmeichel. <laughs> 30% of the chips were past the same goalkeeper. 
Okay, well, let's move on to Owen. Let's move on to Owen. Okay, so your th- theory is Owen isn't getting turned inside out. So if that's the case, like no, all the time, no, 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 if, that, okay. if that's the case, the listeners, the listeners will be able to find no evidence of Dennis Owen getting turned inside out no. all the time. Whoa, 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 and those whoa, listeners whoa, whoa. won't What's be sending the... them through to us. I absolutely and we won't am be not retweeting subscribing them. to this wicker man fallacy that you're building in front of my very eyes. <laughs> Dennis Owen is a fullback who played at the highest level for 15 plus years. Of course he's going to get turned inside out. Like, even Maldini, the alleged never made a tackle, got turned inside out. But what I'm saying is, Dennis Irwin was a world-class player for the biggest and best team in world football. First choice left back for his entire career. He was there in the first Premier League title. He was still there in 99. Well, I've got something very interesting on that. I've got a piece of correspondence. Should we move into the electronic post bag? Because we'll keep it on Manchester United 1990s, which seems perfect considering our guest, Lee Sharp. Let's have the electronic post bag. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the electronic post bag. You've got mail. So this is from Duncan Reynolds, who uh, love the show, and I'm a proud XJ8 member. I recently came across about famous Premier League 11s. Okay. So Michael, Man U fan, could you just run me through... One of the great things about the Man United 1999 team is you can probably say their first choice 11. Like, they're one of the classic teams. Yeah, I think I know this stat, which is the infrequency in that season in which the sort of what you believe is the classic 11 actually all, all played together. Yeah, so shall we, shall we run through the 11? Schmeichel, Irwin, Johnson, Stam, Neville, Giggs, Goals, Keane, Beckham, Cole and York. Astonishingly, that lineup. Only ever played one Premier League game together in history. Isn't that that's, that's mad, isn't it? That's crazy. It's, isn't it interesting that like just Manchester United in the nineties are just a club built on fallacies and lies. <laughs> <laughs> well, also interestingly, and this isn't nineties, but in the same article, they give the the classic Liverpool team of Klopp, which is Allison, Alexander Arnold, Van Dijk, Matip. Robertson, uh, Wijnaldum, Henderson, Fabinho, and then the front three, Salah, Firmino, and um, Mane, never played together in the Premier League. What? Isn't that, never. Isn't that astonishing? That team never lined up as that. That's crazy. But do you want to know the most played lineup in the history of the Premier League? Oh, it's from the wow. early 90s, with a total of 19 appearances, this team. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. It will blow your mind. So it's Schmeichel, uh, Dennis Irwin, Bruce Pallister, Paul Parker, Hughes and Cantona up front, yep, Giggs on the left, Ince, then this will blow your mind. So this is a team, the most played team in the history of the Premier League. Giggs on one wing, on the other wing, Lee Sharp out of position. What? Is he playing him on the right? And then accompanying Ince in midfield, Brian McClare. God. Isn't that astonishing that that's the most... Played 4-4-2 or whatever formation they were playing. That is some fascinating Manchester United facts, but not as fascinating as this. From Noel Doonan. Greetings to all at Quickly Kevin. I'm not sure how true this is, but when I heard it, it blew my mind. I think it is true. Every morning, as I chase a toddler around the house trying to get him ready for crash, I normally hand him the TV remote to distract him. He's quite content sitting and pushing buttons while I make a dog's dinner of getting him dressed. Other morning, he inadvertently turned on the TV and was channel surfing by chewing on the remote. He accidentally landed on a documentary about Freddie Mercury and Queen. And I heard the very distinctive voice. 
I recognise as none other than Eric Monster Monster Hall, uh, the enigmatic football agent from the 90s, discussing his friendship with the late great Freddie Mercury. I was unaware of this, but it turns out he was also a music promoter in the 70s, had a close contact with Queen, and makes the claim in the documentary that Killer Queen is about him. What? The song Killer Queen is about Eric Monster Monster Hall, <laughs> apparently. According to Eric Hall. The opening line referring to Moe S. Chandon is in a pretty cabinet, and just like Marie Antoinette, he says it's about the cabinet in his office that was full of booze, and he is the Marie Antoinette as he had a massive perm in the 1970s. <laughs> Rather than this being a do I remember this right, I think it's a case of does he remember this right? So, was Eric Hall the ba- Isn't that an astonishing piece of trivia? Well, I, I guess my first question around it would be that that song is written like it's a female gender. She keeps her Moe and Shandon. Like, she's a killer queen. Does Eric Hall believe that they regendered it, but it's still about him? Uh, killer, killer King works just as well. Should I text John Robbins and see whether <laughs> it is an astonishing fact, if true, isn't it? Do, do you know what I think? The Moe and Shandon in a pretty cabinet. I think he's put two and two together and got five there. He's like, well, I kept a Moe in the cabinet. Freddie would have seen that. It's about me. Yeah. Surely that's what's happened, isn't it? I'd love it to be true. And if there's any other songs about 90s football characters. I find it most astonishing that we've got however many series this is in and we haven't covered The Killer Queen is about Eric Monster Monster. <laughs> like, it feels like that should be one of the first things you learn about 90s football. The thing is about 90s football, the deeper you dive into it, the more interesting stuff you find out. When you get past all the obvious stuff... It's, it's the stuff that's really, like, 20 foot down underground that's really interesting. In, in straight reply from John Robbins, I've not read this. According to Eric Hall, it is. He tells a story on every Talking Heads show about Queen, but I've never heard it come from anyone else, and I really, really <laughs> doubt it's true. That was a quick response. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Amazing. There we go. Have we got time for one more email? Smoking footballer story. Oh, by the way, someone asked... Uh, can we have the... Well, this is a very quick one, but it does allow us to play the, the sting. Can we have... Do I remember this right, please, Michael? Do I remember this right? Do I remember this right? Do I remember this right? Do I remember, do I remember this, this right? Do I remember this right? Right. From Derek Horrigan. I remember reading years ago that AC, in his AC Milan pomp, George Weyer was sleeping 20 hours a day. <laughs> Literally getting up to train, eat, then back to sleep. This was supposedly to keep his energy levels up. I don't remember where I read it, but it's too mental for my child's mind to make up. And if true, is he still at it as the president of Liberia? The opposite of Margaret Thatcher, I suppose, isn't it? Completely infeasible to be sleeping that long a day. Is that like a sloth? Isn't a sloth? Which four hours would you be up? I suppose if you're training, you're getting up at what? Eight? Going back to bed at 12. I, I, also, I think it's sorely important. He has to be laying in bed awake for a chunk of that time. You can't be sleeping for 20 hours. At best, you could be knocking out 10 hours a day. Also, I'm going to say it. I mean, we're not going to get to the smoking footballer story. We'll save that for next time. Also, I'm going to say it. Um, I think that would mess too much with your body clock for when you then have to play at three in the afternoon. Or worse, 7.45 in the evening in the Champions League. If he's doing 20 hours a day during the week, come the weekend, his body's going to be fucked when he's having to stay up for the match. Here's why I don't think this is true. You ever seen footage of astronauts coming back from space? 
and their muscles are so wasted they can't even walk. They have to be carried out of the spaceship. How's George Weyer laying in a bed for 20 hours a day and then getting up and running around with elite footballers? His body would be wasting away. He'd just be covered in bed sores. <laughs> He'd be, <covered laughs> He'd be covered in bed sores. He would have to have a bedpan. But also, does he? Ha- He'd have to live in the San Siro. Logistically, this impossible. Like if you factor in any kind of travel time. Imagine trying to get to sleep at midday, four hours after getting up, before the advent of podcasts. So you haven't even got that to help you get to sleep. You've got to say it's just a rich mailbag, isn't it? When you when you go, what did we cover? We covered um, the fact that. Dennis Irwin was brilliant. Is a complete fraud. We covered that George Ray slept at twenty times a day, and that Eric Hall was the basis for Killer Queen by Queen. <laughs> if you have anything to compete with that, or more importantly, anything on those topics, uh, this is how to get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin, and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Now, before Lee Sharp, uh, just a uh, a quick plug to say, uh, if you want more of this Lee Sharp interview, uh, then go over onto anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin to join the Quickly Kevin fan club. There you'll get uh, the extras from this interview, which uh, are Lee Sharp answering questions from our fan club, including his take on Cantona attacking the fan in Crystal Palace. Was he happy to be number five? What was life like in Iceland? And does he still own any tapes from the Lee Sharp fan club? The most important question of all. Head over there. There's also um, loads of extra hours and hours of stuff. Ivo Graham covering the Steve Bruce books. This month's special, which is, of course, us reviewing Danny Baker's own goals and gaffes. And most excitingly, next week's episode is already there in a longer form. You can go over there and listen to that now. Yeah, all our exclusive bonus episodes are available over there on the Quitly Kevin fan club. It's anotherslice.com forward slash Quitly Kevin. And right now, for free, if you register, you can hear chapter one of Steve Bruce's Striker with Ivo Graham. Go check it out. Head over to anotherslice.com forward slash Quitly Kevin to subscribe. Now, absolute 90s legend. Lovely, lovely bloke. One of our favourite interviews ever. It flew by. I mean, Obviously, as he used to fly by fullbacks in 1991, this is Lee Sharp. Our guest this week had won three Premier Leagues, two FA Cups, a Football League Cup, the European Cup Winners' Cup and eight England Caps all before his 25th birthday. He was the first footballer of the Premier League era to transcend the sport, becoming a pop culture icon whose stardom formed the template for the hysteria that would later follow fellow United prodigies David Beckham and Wayne Rooney. It's an honour to welcome to Quickly Kevin one of our dream guest bookings, the PFA Young Player of the Year 1991 and the originator of the Sharp Shuffle, Lee Sharp. Welcome, Lee. How you doing? Oh well, what a what a build-up. No pressure. Let's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> say as well, Lee. You look just as good as you did in the mid nineties. What's going on? What's your secret? It's it's either the tan from living in Spain, or it's a bit of a dark room, so you're not seeing <laughs> the full extent of what's going on. <laughs> it's amazing that intro. Like you achieved so much before the age of twenty-five. So isn't it mad that Birmingham basically? 
released you when you were like 16. It looked like at that point that you weren't going to go on to do this when you were just 16, right? Yeah, which, which was a bit weird. I'd only been at Birmingham for sort of 12 months. I signed at 15 and then at 16, uh, it was always touch and go when they were going to take me on. They took six lads on a, a year at a time. They called me and my dad in and said, we think he's got more ability than the other six lads were taking on, but we think he lacks the aggression to be a top flight player. No so I, I, I had to hold my dad back from punching the coach at the time. <laughs> uh, and, and the conversation in the car on the way home was, well, I thought they were coaches. I thought that's what they were supposed to do for you. So, But I wasn't overly sort of heartbroken because I'd only been there a year and all the, all the rest of the school boys they were taking on had been there for like three or four years. I didn't quite fit in as well as I'd like to have done. So, um, But again, really, really fortunate to get offered another trial somewhere else. Do you remember who the six were? Were any of them people we'd have heard of? Uh, there was Paul Tate that played for Birmingham. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul Macefield. And then midfielder called, I think his second name was Fox. Oh, the centre forward might have been Foxy, actually. Centre forward is Foxy. I don't know if he played. Ian Clarkson, who played for Birmingham and Stoke. And another lad, uh, oh, I can't remember his name now, really good little player in midfield. I grew up in Devon. I'm a Plymouth fan. It was so exciting in Devon when you broke through in the early 90s, the fact that you'd played for Torquay. So I didn't remember you playing for Torquay because I was too young. But when people were like, you know this guy started at Torquay? And you'd be like, what? How the hell has he gone? Like, how did you end up at Torquay in the first place? Uh, you know, when sometimes fate is just sort of shining on you. Um, I got let go from Birmingham and I played for a different school district team than my Sunday league teammates played for. Uh, half a dozen of them had had, uh, had trials down at Torquay through one of the lads' granddads knew the guy that supplied the food from the supermarket to the Torquay United. <laughs> and got, and got, <laughs> this is how it works, right? Um, so six of them went down. I think two or three had been invited back for a second trial. And in the meantime, I'd been let go from Birmingham. So they said, oh, can we bring our mate down? He's just been let, been let go by Blues. And they went, yeah, bring him down. No way. So I played three games in three days and, and got offered a YTS. That's incredible. And so what was it like moving to Torquay, the English Riviera, let's not forget. Like, is that why you live in Spain now, trying to recapture the Torquay glory? <laughs> yeah. all goes back to Torquay. Um, it was, I mean, you know, my mum and dad drove off the first time when they left me and I just bawled my eyes out in my room. It was uh, oh, mate. a scary moment. 16 years old, you think you're big and tough, but... You were four days after your 16th birthday. So it's like, you're really 16. You're not at the back yeah. end of that. You are no. proper 16. That's crazy. Yeah, it was, it was... When you look back, it was pretty mental. But I was very fortunate in the fact that uh, I had really good digs. I had a Scottish couple look after me with two kids. Made it a real family-friendly atmosphere. There were two second years that stayed there. One lad from Brighton called Gordon Murray. Uh, really nice lad. And then uh, another lad called Jimmy Smith. Scottish lad, centre-forward. It was a bit of the cock of the town and full of confidence. So it was nice. And, and Gordon was a little bit quieter. So it was great to have those two characters in the, in the house as well. So sort of preparing me for dressing room life. When you're living in digs, are you literally part of this family you're sitting watching coronation street with them on a wednesday <laughs> evening and stuff yeah that's exactly what we're doing yeah <laughs> i was babysitting for the kids but the husband um uh, big bag bill we used to call him big scotsman like big pigeon chested beard aggressive uh used to work away on the rigs and, and we'd all sit around watching whatever on tv and then all the lads would give each other a nod and all three of us would jump onto Big Bad Bill and try and beat him up. 
<laughs> Do you know what? This has just come into my head. When I say it, you'll go, I can see why that wasn't a planned question. Because obviously we grew up in Devon. My mum and dad once bought a horse off a guy who claimed to have been one of your best friends at Torquay United. Who was that? Tom Kelly, is that someone? Yeah, Tom Kelly, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so Tom Kelly was uh, Tom Kelly was a Scotsman um, and married a girl from down, I think she was from down Devon, and she was a big horse trainer, horse buyer and seller. Right. So they were big into horses, yeah, he was a really good player, left back he played. So he wasn't bullshitting in a tent no, to get no, the price yeah. of the horse up? Tom Kelly was like, he, he sort of looked after me. When I started playing left wing, he was left back, so he used to kick people for me, basically. <laughs> he, was, he, was like, he was like one of my guardian angels. He was the Gary Neville to your David Beckham in that kind <laughs> yeah. of flank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were you much better than everyone? Like, at Torquay United, you're, that's fourth division, and you're maybe two years away from being, you know, the most kind of exciting young star in English football. So was it... Was it obvious that you were really good at that stage? Did you stand out? Well, well, I think I stood, I stood out enough to get into the first team at 16. Uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, my first league goal was a penalty. We, we were playing a, a game against, I think we were lying fifth and we were playing Cardiff at home. We were third, we were chasing a playoff place. And I'd won a penalty competition in training that week and <laughs> we got a penalty and I run over, someone booted the ball and the manager caught it and called me over. I said, give us the ball, give us the ball. He went, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, 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 just give it a ball. Uh, so, so I suppose I was, I was trusted and good enough to get into the first team as a 16-year-old kid. It's a pretty confident move. Were you a really confident 16-year-old? I think some. I think I was uh, absolutely petrified in a lot of places, but, but really comfortable in, in other places. And I think at the time, I was confident that I could take people on and get crosses in, which is what, what I've always wanted to do. Uh, and as far as penalties, I'd, I'd taken penalties for the school. I'd been penalty taker for a Sunday league team I played in. So a penalty wasn't that much of a bigger deal, if you know what I mean. And, and, and as a 15-year-old, I played for an open age team. So I was playing men's football um, when I was 15. So to play against the men wasn't such a, a massive step up. On the conference thing, we saw an interview with your mum where she said, um, that as a kid, you used to practice your autograph because you knew you'd be famous. Yeah, I used to practice on my school books, yeah, and I think I used to pass them out to people in the class, too. Uh... Maybe worth something now. Lee Sharp's 12-year-old, you know, autograph of Lee Sharp at the age of 12 on a history exercise book. I, I don't think bargain basements, I don't think you're going to make, make your fortunes on that. I'm going straight on eBay with that. I'm going to fake yeah. a few of them. <laughs> one, 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 actually, we didn't plan to ask this question, but I'd seen quite a few times Steve Bruce makes, uh, in like archive footage he makes reference to the fact that you wanted to be in Take That was that just banter or did you actually want to be in Take That that's more banter I, I didn't particularly want to be in Take That I just <laughs> wanted to be a rock star I think I just think I, I just wanted to be I didn't want to be the lead singer I've always wanted to be the drummer or a bit of a guitar player or something but um, yeah I've, no, I've never really wanted to be the centre of attention but part of something that's quite big <laughs> well <laughs> Talking United mm-hmm. is obviously a big deal. Um, I, as, as someone from Devon, I'm mainly going to focus on that throughout the interview. But um, <laughs> what, what, we will come to Man U. But Talkie, uh, a small club, you know, Plainmore's a tight little ground. And um, like when I was, so this was after you were there, they were training on the local race course, on Newton Abbott race course. So what were the like yeah. training facilities like? And what was the experience of playing at that level at that age? Well, training was brutal. Uh, we, we'd train in the mornings with 
uh, you know, we'd all go out minibuses or, or we'd have to run to a training game. We would never know where we're training because they're ringing up on the morning trying to find a training pitch. Amazing. So we'd train at a local ground, we'd train at a local park, we'd train wherever we could find to train. We'd have one minibus that the first teamers would go on. Um, reserves and sort of young lads would probably have to run there, depending on how, how far <laughs> it was. Incredible. We'd then have to run back, we'd then have to make pots of tea and clean the dressing room from the first team. And then uh, all the apprentices, six first years, six second years, we would we would just get absolutely beasted. We, we'd run up and down the hills of Torquay, load of be sick. A um, couple, of, couple of lads jacked it because it was too hard. Wow. Um, so it was, it was brutal. You know, we'd take it in turns. The, the kids after the game would all be putting a, a wicker skip with wheels on and a couple of us would wheel, wheel it down to the laundrette and do the washing and wash the kit and dry the kit and bring <laughs> it back. God. We're pick, picking up tie-ups off the floor after the game and hanging them over a hot water pipe so they dried for the next game. Did you get excused from that because you are in the first team? Was there a bit an element of, well, Lee's actually playing, so he doesn't need to do as much as that? Yeah, well, yeah. When I, when I played, I got away with it, but if I didn't play, <laughs> uh, my room was with a, with a lad called Ian Basto, one of the young lads down there was a really good midfielder, uh, and our room was to clean the referee's room. So referee's room on match days, and, uh, and that was the manager and coach's office. Um, and changing room during the week, so we, we cleaned that. And did you just go, well, this is what it is? At any point, did you go, oh, I can't be bothered with this? No, I, th- I think I always thought it can't be this hard every day. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were we were run, doing some unbelievable amount of running. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I think I always thought it would be easier, because obviously you see the first team turn up in the morning, do a bit of football, go home. Yeah. So you're always aspiring to be in the first team, so you can leave it. 12, 1 o'clock and go and do what you want to do and then just look forward to the game. So that's what I always saw at the end of it. And then, like, fourth division, here's a tricky, pacey 16-year-old. I imagine the grizzled veterans of the fourth division in 1987 <laughs> didn't take kindly to that. Yeah, no, not at all. I, I think I played in the reserves at Bristol or Cardiff on, like, a freezing cold January evening. Uh, frost on the pitch. breath You could see your breath coming out, absolutely perishing. And I've gone past one lad and he's just jumped at me two-footed from behind oh. and done all my an- ankle ligaments. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but that, that was part of the, the manager's chat to me when, when United actually come in and the manager said, you know, uh, Man United are in, it's going to be a good move. You're getting a little bit uh, targeted by full-backs, shall we say now. He said, so before you sort of get killed in this league, we need to get you out of here. <laughs> so, like you're getting out of Vietnam, just being airlifted. <laughs> the last the- chopper. The last yeah. chopper out of Torquay. <laughs> it's, it's a hell of a, like, jump, right? It's mad. Yeah. So It's ridiculous. What's the first you heard of it? Because I, I love that manager's going, it's a good move for you. Yeah, of course it's a fucking good move. It's Man United. <laughs> it literally came out of nowhere. I was laying, laying my bed in my digs at sort of 1.30 after a, in the morning after a Friday night game against Hereford. I think we drew 0-0 or 1-1 and I didn't particularly have a great game. Someone comes walking up the corridor and knocks on my door. It's the landlady's mate. But as she knocks on the door, she said, uh, I don't know what you've been doing or where you've been, but the manager and club secretary downstairs, they want to see you straight away. At 1.30 in the morning? Yeah, so as a 60-year-old kid, I'm putting my trackie on, thinking, where have I been? What have I been doing? And <laughs> they, they sit me down in the, in the dining room and said, son, we've just been driven around Torquay for the last hour and a half in the back of a Jaguar with Alex Ferguson and Archie Knox. They're not leaving Torquay till they shake your hand in the morning. They want to take you to Manchester United. No way. And that was the first I heard of it. Um, the first I'd had any inclination of anybody watching or I was going anywhere. Or. And did you, you said you had quite an underwhelming match. 
Yeah, I, 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 di I didn't have a great game at all, no. Um, I got beat up a little bit. Like you said, there was some experienced fallback against me and wasn't going to give me the, the light of day. So he just battered me. I mean, he elbowed me a few times. He booted me a few times. And funnily enough, I went up to see Fergie the next morning and uh, he said, you know, we watched the game last night. So we knew, we know it wasn't one of your best games. Took a couple of whacks around the head and a, a couple of good kickings. He said, but you kept getting up. You kept having a go. We can see you're going to have good lines as an athlete. You're very skinny now, but you're going to fill out to a proper athlete. He's prepared to have a, take a chance on you. So, wow. wow. What was he like on your first meeting? Was he scary? Uh, no, he's obviously not. He wants to sign me, doesn't he? So he's not going to be massive <laughs> when I first meet him. He, he was lovely. He was, uh, you know, he said lovely things like, you know, obviously I, I hadn't played well, but he said, we can see that you can and you've got pace and you like to go at people and you're brave. He was filling me with everything that was I wanted to hear for, for, for down the line. What's the first phone call you make? When you find out Man United are interested, presumably you're going to call your parents, right? Yeah. How did that yeah. go? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think my mum answered the phone. I just said, oh, can you put dad on? Because obviously they're three hours away in the car. So by the time I'm on the phone, I'm not even sure that they're home at this point. I said, put me dad on. And, and I told her, I said, oh, I've, just, uh, I've got to go and meet Alex Ferguson tomorrow at 10 o'clock at Manchester United. Want me to sign from? And there was just a deathly silence for about five seconds. I was like, Dad, Dad. Uh, and he was just like, mm, Are you sure? I was like, Sure. I said, Dad, it's Manchester United. He went, Yeah, but you're getting in the first team. You're banking a bit of reputation. Might be better to climb the league slowly. I was like, Dad. I said, Even if I go there and make an absolute balls of it. I said, there's a long way for me to fall from Manchester United down the lead. I said, I've got to go. He's like, oh, I know you've got to go. He said, I'm just a little bit concerned. It's a bit big at this moment in time. I was like, I get what you're saying, but, you know, I've got to go. And so how soon after that meeting are you at Man United? Is it that same week? Are you just straight to Man U? No, I was, I was 16 at the time. Couldn't sign professional forms till I was 17, which was obviously the end of the season. So I was going to stay at Torquay till the end of the season. So I think that was about... February time, March time maybe. And then about three or four weeks later, I had a couple of days up there training with the reserves and the first team. I'd, I'd look around the place. I think Torquay were playing um, Southport or someone. So I went up on the Wednesday on the train, trained went, uh, trained Thursday, Friday. And then uh, the manager went and dropped me at the Torquay team hotel near Southport. So I was in the squad for Saturday. So uh, that was that was probably about April time. And then I didn't go up there until probably the 1st of June when I signed my contract. And then 1st of July, I started pre-season. And what wow. were those first training sessions like at Man U? Oh, horrendous. It must have been so intimidating, right? Oh, horrendous. It was absolutely <laughs> horrendous. Horrendous. I'm, I'm, I'm playing with these lads that have been at the club. I mean, no disrespect. It was, only, it was the reserves I was training with. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, the, the first touch was impeccable. They never gave the ball away. They knew where to be and when to be, and it was just I was a fish out of water, just flapping around, not knowing what I was doing. My, my touch was bouncing all over the place. I had lads tutting at me because my first touch was useless, oh, and they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah." You know, that, that, they're like, "Is this lad that just signed for a load of money? He's rubbish." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, no, I am. I don't know what's going wrong." <laughs> Give me a break. But you get into the first team quite quickly. I think September of that year, you actually make it into the first and make your debut. Were you, were you absolutely terrified then, like getting caught up into the first team? Yeah, I had no, I had no idea. So so I've been playing the reserves. Obviously, I'm a left winger. And then um, 
just after pre-season, we have a few injuries and uh, I think we've got a couple of other players that can play left wing and stuff. So, so the reserve team manager says, listen, just do us a favour and for the next couple of games, just play left back for me. So I think the manager wants to have a look at you there and we want to see if you can play there. And he said, I was like, right, OK, no problem. And I hate playing left back. I, I've played there a few times and hate playing there. On the Thursday, I think it was, before we played West Ham. Oh, no, we, we played a centenary game against Newcastle on the Wednesday night. And I think on the Monday, the manager said, oh, how are you feeling? They said, I might give you a run out on Wednesday. So I ended up playing on the Wednesday against Newcastle at Old Trafford. That went to extra time. So I actually played two hours on the Wednesday on my debut. Thursday, he comes to me and said, how are you feeling? I went, yeah, yeah, I'm a bit tired, but fine. He's like, right, will you be all right if, if I give you a game on Saturday? I said, yeah, yeah, I'll be, I'll be fine. So, uh, so I played against West Ham on the Saturday uh, at Old Trafford. Can't remember a lot about the game apart from just passing it to Brian Robson all day. Five <laughs> yards away. There you go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> what was the dressing room like at that point? Like, it, it, there's big net. Like Brian Robson, obviously, but like, presumably Bruce and Pallister are there by that point. Are oh, then people like like big kind of imposing characters? Yeah. Well, well, I mean, way back then, Pally wasn't even there. Brucey was there. Robson. Uh, you had people like Paul McGrath, Norman Whiteside. Uh, Jasper Olsen, Gordon Strachan, Mark Hughes, Brian McClare. So you had a you had a pretty big, big, strong dressing room. As soon as I walked in, obviously I just never said a word for months. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, there's a big kind of social element of that team as well down the pub. Do you get do you get invited straight away? How does it work when you're young, like 16, 17? Well, I, I was I was still getting changed in the, the the cliff at the training ground. I was still getting changed. Uh, in the reserve team dressing room. And I was probably in the reserve team dressing room until I was about 19, I think. So I spent oh, really? probably two, two seasons in the reserve team dressing room at the training ground before I even moved up to the first team dressing room. For your choice or theirs? No, their choice, their choice. I think I think they just think that as a young lad, you're probably better off with players your own age, I suppose. Fergie's fledglings of Lee Martin, Russell Beardsmore, Mark Robbins, Daniel Graham, they were all in the reserve team dressing room. So right. I was with that sort of group of players. So we were all edging our way into the first team. So when we did spend time with the first team, they, they were the lads that I would knock around with. Did you get invited to the pub? We did, yeah. I mean, Brian Robson was, um, it, it was all or nothing. Obviously, the first team lads went out two or three times a week for lunch and a couple of glasses of wine or whatever they did. We, we didn't get invited to that as such because we were doing our own thing. But then once we got into the first team dressing room, well, although Brian Robson used to have first team and reserve dressing room go out once a month, once every five weeks, everyone would go out and, We'd all chat to each other and get to know each other and have a few beers and put the world to rights. So, yeah, we were so it, was, it was always like being edged in and coaxed in and yeah. seeing if you were worthy, I suppose. But One of the players you mentioned there who's kind of your peer is Mark Robbins, who obviously, during this time, scored that goal in the FA Cup that supposedly saved Fergie's job and all that kind of stuff. That was a big thing, obviously, in the press, but did that feel real within... Old Trafford, that this manager, Alex Ferguson, might get sacked? There, there was definitely a pressure on the team and on the manager. And you could definitely see it in the manager's face and, and mannerism. Will, Will just say he's a bit, he's a bit of a, a giveaway when he when he starts getting under pressure. The manager gets, he gets very red. Uh, his, his hands are going behind his back like this, flapping on his thumbs. Oh, really? He sort of coughs and spits. <clears throat> like... <clears throat> He gets all like this and, and very, very sort of intense. And so you can see when the pressure, he's like it in big games. He's, he was like it around about that, that time of, of his career. So, yeah, there was, there was, there was big talk. He, he, I mean, even he kept coming in in team talks and saying, listen, 
I know there's rumours about my job. Don't you worry about my job. Let me worry about my job. You just worry about the game and you do this, you do this. Oh, so he'd bring it up himself. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. And did everyone go, this guy's brilliant, we believe in him. He's going to win 12 leagues. Not he's going to win 12 leagues, but like... <laughs> I'm not sure they were like convinced he was a, a brilliant man manager or tactician. I think it was just his work ethic and, and the discipline around the place. And, and also in, in conjunction with the fact that he had people like the Brian Robson that could lead from the pitch and, and drive his ideas on the pitch. Um, yeah. and, and I know, you know, the manager and Brian Robson didn't have exactly the same views. I know Robbo and him have, have had words at times uh, along with other players, but I think, I think the manager was wise enough to allow Robson to have as much power as he did in the dressing room. And I think Robson was a massive infl- influence on that whole from from Fergie getting getting there to us winning the first title, I think Robson was and we're going to be as bold to say more influential than than Alex Ferguson. Um, wow, he would definitely be up there level with him as far as reasons why we won the league. And is that because he's like psychologically leading the team, or is he is he giving tactical thoughts and stuff like that, or is he? It's just it, the character is. The sheer character of him, for one, in the dressing room, he's just, he's like a god when he walks into a room. Really? Uh, his, his, his level of performances, week in, week out, were never lower than an eight. Yeah. Uh, usually a nine or a ten. He would usually dictate the pace of play, whether we wanted to play quick or slow, he did it. If the game was going flat, he'd go and boot somebody and get the crowd riled and <laughs> get the atmosphere going and, and, and kickstart the game. Uh, if we were under pressure, he would play a long ball down the channels for someone to run on and, and turn the defence so it gives the defenders a bit of a breather. He just knew what to do at every moment in a football match. And if someone was getting kicked or was under pressure, he would slide towards their side of the pitch to make sure that he was there to help while they were struggling. Um, oh, wow. He was just an incredible player, captain on and off the pitch. Your third season at Old Trafford is where you really bed into the team, the 1990-91 season. Got the hat-trick um, against Arsenal at Highbury, but it's also where we really start seeing the birth of your iconic goal celebrations, specifically Everton away, the sharp shuffle. And I was thinking, like, I think you're one of the first people to really do goal celebrations. So it must have felt like a really brave move at the time. And were you not scared about what Ferguson was going to say about these goal celebrations? I think I, gr- I grew up in an era watching sort of what would I say? Late 80s was probably the most memorable time and watching Aston Villa win the European Cup and Tony Morley bombing down the wing and beating people. And, and I, was, I was in the old end and the whole old end of Villa Park would just roar and go up and everybody would lean and squash each other. And it was just... And I, I just remember the entertainment factor of, of what it did to the crowd. Uh, and, and that's just what I like to do. And, and the celebrations were always... I suppose being on the terraces and celebrating a goal at Villa and knowing how bonkers the fans go. I just wanted to be a bit of a fan after I'd scored. So I didn't worry about the manager not liking it. It was just like, I've just scored for Manchester United in front of a, what generally was a packed house. Don't get me wrong. I, I never did the celebrations if we were 2-0 down. I've just scored it to make, make it 2-1. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not celebrating when we're losing. Um, so so my, my idea was, do you know what? Um, how many times am I going to get to do this? How many people get to do this? What an amazing position to be in. I want to be part of the fans enjoying this moment from the other side as well as I want to be this side. So I'm going to try and interact with the fans. And I just did this shuffle mainly because um, at Arsenal on the Tuesday, 
The pitch was like a carpet. It was nice and greasy. I slid on my knees. I did a forward roll. Everything was fine. <laughs> and then we got to Everton and the pitch was like a farmer's field, bone dry. I couldn't slide on my knees. I didn't want to damage my back doing a forward roll. So I just did this stupid shuffle that I'd done getting a, a strike at bowling the week before and just thought nothing of it. And the manager saw it, come on the bus after the game, scored four in a week, remember? Comes up the coach and I'm sat on the end. He comes right up to my face there. What was all that fucking carry on after you scored, you little piece of shit? I didn't get your feet on the floor. Who the fuck do you think you are? I'm like, well, I thought I just scored the winner at Everton. You know, just give me 30 seconds. And then after that, I just stopped and thought about it. I thought, it's a bit cheeky to do that. He could have pulled me in on Monday morning and said, listen, I'm not keen on the celebrations because of this, this and this. And I'd have probably gone, do you know what? I was a bit stupid. I'll, I'll jack it in. But instead, he kept bollocking me and bollocking me. And in the end, I just thought, do you know what? I'm, I don't I don't care. I'm just going to do it anyway. <laughs> the fans love them. I love them. I'm just going to have my moment and I'm going to enjoy scoring. That was that was how it went. And did he come round to the celebrations at any point? No, never. Never. So he, he rolled at me again for another one just after and then said, if you do it again, you're fine. And I think we, we actually went to Aston Villa and I scored in the away end. It was a bit of a scrappy tapping goal. Uh, and I think it was just to equalise, so I didn't do a full celebration. But it was right in front of our fans. I've run around the corner flag and just give it a quick little shuffle like that and then run off. And then I come, after the game, Archie Knox come up to me and said, oh, by the way, you're dancing, you're doing after you scored. He said, I've just had to pull the manager. He was halfway down the track. You're <laughs> thumped. He said, I've just had to drag him back up to the... To the dugout, I was like, oh. <laughs> Cantona, oh, that's a beautiful ball. Martin, first time, good cross. Oh, on the volley by Lee Sharp, and a goal out of the blue. Perfectly executed volley. Lean back just enough. Left foot, like a bullet. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. I find, like now you see the cameras at Old Trafford cut to Ferguson when Ronaldo's doing the zoo and he's he's applauding, he's loving it. Now it must does it not irk you a little bit that he's it's all like the world has changed so much now. You were just a trailblazer when it came to goal celebrations. Yeah, well, I think I think I think the pair of us learnt a lot from each other. If, if <laughs> told. I think uh, I'm not sure you'd ever come across something like what I was doing, and and I'd certainly never been treated by a manager uh, like, like he treated his players. So well, I think we both found it difficult at times and we both did the best that we could at the time. So I, I was I was not willing to let anybody stop me enjoying myself after I scored a goal for at least 20 seconds. And he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't keen on that. So 
did you like him as a person? Like, did what? What was your kind of feelings towards him? If at that time someone said, "What do you think of Alex Ferguson, the man?" What would you have said? I don't know. I, I think uh, I think maybe a little bit disappointed or let down, maybe. Yeah. Just because I was a young kid, I was. I mean, I was a teenager when I first got in the team from 17 to 19 and, and I would have a couple of good games and then I would have a couple of not so good games and I would come off and, and, and he would, he would bollock me and, and slag me off. And I'm thinking, I'm not trying to play bad. Can you just tell me what I'm doing wrong and how to put it right? Yeah. So I don't have to go through this. And he never did. It was always like, sort it out, sort it out, sort it out. And I was like, well, what? You know, if I knew how to sort it out, <laughs> then I wouldn't be in this position in the first place. <laughs> so, so it would, it would go between me sort of, I think as, as a man, he's, he's, a, he's a lovely man. I mean, he's looked after me. I had viral meningitis. He looked after me really well. I was injured. He looked after me really well. Um, but, but I just think he, I think he was a little bit of a bully towards me. And, and when you respond to bullies, you either crawl up in a corner and cry or puff your chest up and just laugh at people. And I tended to laugh more. And I think he took that as me not responding to, to what he was telling me or asking me and, and just created this conflict of, of interest. Yeah, yeah. One of your early successes, you win the European Cup Winners' Cup, scoring in the semi-final and then beating Barcelona in the final. What was it like to win? And that's that first trophy since the Busby uh, won in 1968, European trophy. What was that like as a night? Oh, it was incredible. It's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the nights from football that I don't think I'll ever forget. It was wet. It was tipping down the rain, so it's like a pretty, pretty typical English night. Where was it? Was it in Hol- Rotterdam? Or if I made that? It was in Rotterdam. Yeah. yeah, it was in Rotterdam. So, so all the ground was open air. Everyone was getting soaked. There was probably, I'd say, three quarters of the stadium was full of Man United fans, and there were flares, red flares, there were flags. Uh, you got to remember, this is the first time European British clubs have been allowed in in Europe since Heysel, so no one had been to or seen or, or seen any English clubs in in Europe. And we turned up and it was just, the crowd was so loud. The atmosphere was electric and it was the most nervous I've ever been for a football match. I couldn't think straight. I was trying to relax myself and, and couldn't. I couldn't sleep for two nights before the game. And oh my God. Uh, it was just the biggest night of our lives. And, and to go on and win that was was so bonding for the team, but, but so confidence building. Uh, everybody grew a foot. Uh, and I think from then on, we sort of realised we had a, we had a nucleus of a team that can compete against anybody. Oh, and it's been knocked by McClare, straight to Goyakachia. In comes Dennis Owen, it's over! Manchester United are the winners! Two goals for one, after a wait of 23 years. Hey, wait, come on! What, what does it feel like? Oh, it's magnificent, look at that. This is the boot, it's the club that's Manchester needs about. Winning the biggest things you can possibly win. The heroes now, the legends. Well, here comes the big moment for Manchester United and not least for their irrepressible captain, Brian Robson. Up he goes. The Cup Winners' Cup of 1991 belongs to Manchester United. When you say you couldn't sleep for like two nights before the game, who are you rooming with in that? Uh, for that game, who was it? I think I might have been rooming with Darren Ferguson. Manager's son. Manager's son. <laughs> <laughs> That's an absolute shocker, isn't it? The plot, the plot thickens. <laughs> Would Ferguson decide? Who decides that? A lot of players uh, are roommates for quite a long time. Like Brian Robson was always with Steve Bruce, Roy Keane and Dennis Irwin, Mark Hughes, Clayton Blackmore. So I've, I've roomed with 
Who have I room with? Mark Robbins, Darren Ferguson, Dion Dublin, Gary Pallister, uh, David Beckham. They all feel like good good people to have room with. And there's no one there uh, that I'm like, oh, that would have been no, hard. I've had, the, I've had the best roommates ever. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> best roommates ever. And when, when you roomed with David Beckham, was his personality? Did, I mean, could you... I mean, obviously, you have foreseen that he'd become one of the most famous kind of best-looking, most, you know, richest men in the world. Was that... <laughs> could you see what... That, that potential in David Beckham to be this superstar? Not just... No. I don't just mean on the pitch, but I mean as a person and a brand and all that kind of thing. No, nowhere near. Nowhere near. I mean, obviously, talent... I've always said, if you, if you wrote a textbook on, on how to strike a football, you'd probably use David Beckham as as the illustration because he, he strikes it so pure, his technique's so good. Um... But no, he, he was always very shy, pretty quiet, lovely, smiley kid. But no, you, you wouldn't see him as this global superstar. I mean, I, I remember I, I used to have my own fan club back in the day. We're going to get on to that. So I have this fan club. that We send all the kids to the, the museum and the tour around Old Trafford. Then they come to this nightclub, Royale, discotheque Royales, three floors, old theatre, holds about 1,500 people. The place is packed full of kids and we've got some local bands playing and a bit of a fashion show and and Bex comes to one of them and and there's me Bex and my brother who was a young lad at Man City at the time and we're all stood there he went oh my god Sharpie he said you're such a legend he went I'll never have any of this <laughs> oh really <laughs> oh really <laughs> let's talk about the fan club because over the years people have got in touch about your fan club members of your fan club have got in touch so we've had people that went to the Royals events where there was a barbecue, is that right, as well? That's right, yeah. We had, we had live bands, we had a barbecue outside, so everybody ate for free. And Yeah, it was. It, they were really good, to be fair. They were really well organised. <laughs> we, had, we, had, we had kids, I mean, they were mainly like, I'd say there were two-thirds teenage girls at the time. Yeah. But we had support supporters coaches. We'd hired supporters coaches that bring fans up every week from Norfolk, from London, from... You know, from Birmingham, from all over the place. We had coaches come from all over to this fan club disco. It was it was unbelievable. What does Fergie think of this, or does he not know? Uh, I'm not sure if he knew too much about it, but um, I think you know if it, if he'd have asked anybody that was involved, they would tell you that all we're doing is interacting with the fans and giving the fans yeah a nice day out. We're looking after everyone. We're putting on a nice show. Yeah. It was like the start of football as celebrity, right? One of the things is you'd send out a, a, a tape cassette each month. <laughs> is this right? They would just yeah. like record your kind of thoughts on a tape cassette. It was because because at the time I was, I was getting like bagfuls of, of fan mail asking for autographs and, and pictures and, and I just couldn't keep up. So so in the end we said, well, what we'll do is we'll just, we'll start this fan club that I think was about £6.50 a year to join, which would just about cover posted and packaging and, and buying the tapes and recording it and all the rest of it. And we'd send out a monthly sort of newsletter, what I've been up to, where I've been, what I've been doing, what about the games, this, that and the other. Um, and it was just a, a way really for us to answer back and talk to the fans without losing it through through mail. And is it? I've seen an interview, was your mum running a lot of this? Well, she started to. She started to do bits and then it, it quickly became a little bit too big for my mum to sit there <laughs> in, in the kitchen just... Sorting out one or two autographs and pictures, it, it, we had to get a few people to help us out. Yeah, how many people were in the Lee Sharp fan club at its peak? 
Thousands. Oh, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, there were there were a couple of thousand. I think we had. A, I think we go to about two and a half, three thousand something. I'm not exactly sure, but that's, uh, that's a lot of cassettes to be posting. That's a lot. It was a lot of cassettes. Yeah, <laughs> was, yeah. uh, Brian, I saw an interview with Brian Robson where he says like the fandom surrounding you was like sharing a dressing room with the Beatles. He's, he, he told one story where it was like he was used to like three or four autograph hunters outside the training ground, and then when you really became big, like there were hundreds of girls outside. So like, is that accurate? And what was that like to live through, really? Well, I suppose it's something that that grew. It, it grew. I mean, we, we would Manchester United would always have school holidays. We'd always have a few hundred people turn up to the training ground just to watch training, try and get things signed, try and have a photo. And then I think as obviously become more successful, then the Premier League started coming, so there was more coverage. So that grew. And in the end, we, we you know school holidays, we would quite regularly have two and half, two, 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 three thousand at the training ground. And security having to turn up to put bollards there and make everyone safe. And so, so, so this was growing as we were there. And then, because Brian Robson used to have um, some business with birthdays, the card shops, and he was mm-hmm. opening one in he was opening one in Dublin. So he asked me in gigs. He said, "I oh, will fly you over to Dublin. Um, we'll do a couple of hours there in one of the shops, uh, and then we'll fly back that evening." So I'm like, yeah, yeah. He said, "I'll give you a couple of quid for it and sort your airfare and all." I'm like, okay. So we pull over there and we get outside this birthdays card shop and there's the offices upstairs and we're outside the offices upstairs and it is literally like the Beatles have landed this whole road is shot it was like you two on the roof <laughs> it's like oh, well, oh my god look at this like Ming is just waving like royalty and Robson's sitting there laughing his head off going look at these two idiots I mean and it also opening a birthday card shop it's nothing to do like, like how many of those people are like oh I get more birthday cards than everything now <laughs> Yeah. It was actually the day before Mother's Day, so that's why the crowds were there. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, yeah, yeah, obviously. Um, and then just before your 20th birthday, you get called up for England for the first time. I mean, we talked about, like, Ferguson having a sticky time, but you, you called up to England under Graham Taylor. It wasn't like... It was a slightly dodgy rain for Amanda. What was it? What was Graham Taylor like to play for? Because people have got so much nice stuff to say about him as a man. I, I loved him. Yeah, I loved him. I loved him. He was he was lovely to me. I think I think the problem with with Graham was the the senior pros probably didn't think he was qualified enough for the job and gave him a bit of a hard time. Right. Um, but for me, he was he was amazing. You know, he was. You just go on. You're young enough. Go and enjoy yourself. Express yourself. You've got plenty of years. Don't worry if you get it wrong. You've got plenty of years ahead of you. you just go and enjoy yourself. So it was it was nice because when I, when I got into the England team, I, I'd had a couple of years in the first team at United. And I'd started playing pretty well on the left wing and there was, there was sort of a certain standard that was expected of me. Uh, and then to go to England and just to have that expectation taken away and I could just enjoy playing football again yeah. was, a real, was a real blessing for me. Uh, and, and unfortunately, the, we, we didn't do too great as a team. It, well, it, it culminates, the England's failed bid to qualify for the World Cup in 94 culminates in this horrible night in Rotterdam where we are essentially robbed. You've had two... You've had two- <laughs> Two historic nights in Rotterdam, very <laughs> yeah, different, different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> should have obviously been sent off because he, he brings David Platt down as he's cleaned yeah. through, and then goes and scores a free kick. So it's, it's, a, it's a double, and, and, I'm, and I'm not kidding you. That is probably one of the most dominant England. Well, and he played, started eight times, but uh, you know, Paul Merson absolutely terrorised Holland the whole night. Um, I think we hit the post twice, we hit the crossbar once oh. or twice. We absolutely we battered Holland. Uh, and came off losing. And what was it like? Because I don't know if you've seen the have you seen the Graham Taylor documentary that they were filming. I have, yeah. 
Yeah. And he's going to the linesman, you know, your mate's lost me my job, blah, blah, blah. I'm, you know, it's kind of, it's really sad and like, you feel for him. Then what's it like? Do you remember that dressing room after the game? Is he like, well, that's me done, guys? Yeah, I think it was. I think he came in, he came into a couple of dressing rooms raging and, and kicking off. And then I think after that one, I don't think he, he really said a lot. I think the disappointment was on all the players' faces. I think he knew from the build up, from the press, what, what it was going to be like. And it was just, I remember getting, because I think we flew back to Luton Airport um, and the the reception that the manager got at Luton Airport was an absolute disgrace. Oh. You know, people calling him names, paparazzi shooting at him all over the place. Um, it was it was embarrassing. It was, it was a real shame because no one deserves that, whether you've done a job, yeah. just for doing a job not quite as, as, as well as people want you to. I don't think uh, anybody should, should be, should, and, and the, the name calling and the turnip head and, you know, he's, I think his family suffered, he suffered, and it was just uh, it was just a shame. He was such a nice bloke. Is that wall lined up? Can Seaman get a side of it? Kuman with a shot, charged down by Ince. Burkham tries to get it in. I don't think... I think possibly Ince will get a yellow card because he was not within... He got within 10 yards, so Kuman gets a reprieve for the second time. And gets another free kick, Ron. As a manager, you think that's brilliant defending from Ince. Ince is the charger. Ince has come out and blocked the shutout, full of bravery. Now he's been punished for it. So come on, England. Let's see if we can hold it out again. Again, it's Ronald Koeman. Again, the problem is there. Again, it's a critical moment. He's going to flip one now. He's going to flip one. He's going to flip one. And it's in. An excellent free kick. Well, I feel nothing but sympathy for Graham Taylor, I must say. And, like, throughout the 90s, then, England have this left-sided problem where they can't find a kind of left-winger. There's, a like, a parallel world. You'd have been England's left-winger for a decade there, isn't there? Yeah, it's all sliding doors, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think after that, uh, I think for the next couple of years, I was, I was more in and out of the team because of little injuries or loss of form or this, that, and other. Um, so never really put a good run together yeah. to warrant a call-up from from the next manager. One of the, the big moments is, you touched on it earlier, the viral meningitis, which uh, sounded absolutely horrible. How close was that to finishing your career? Um, I, I'm not sure about uh, finishing my career. I, I was more concerned about finishing my life, to be fair. I was yeah. like, uh, yeah. is this thing going to kill me? <laughs> uh, I, I just remember the surgeon saying, um, he saying, no, it, it's, it's viral, so it shouldn't do any lasting damage. It's just a matter of giving it time to to settle and go away itself because there wasn't really any treatment they could give me. It's all about white cells and blood cells and too many of one are fighting the other. And um, it, it, it took on the form of a, a stroke. So I would get pins and needles in my left foot and then that would take like an hour, hour and a half to come all up my left side and into the side of my face. My speech went slurred. Oh, uh, that, that would last for, I don't know, an hour or so then that would go and it would be like spot. I can't remember exactly how long it was, but it would spot on it the same amount of time, either four hours or six hours from the moment the pins and needles went, I would then be throwing up for two days and have migraines. Oh my God. So I'd have to be taken to hospital to be put on a drip to keep hydrated. So and I had three attacks like that and it was, uh, it, it was pretty tough. Obviously I wasn't eating a lot. I wasn't be able to, I couldn't even walk down the street without me getting out of breath and having an attack. So it, it was literally doing nothing in the house for, a couple of months yeah it was it was it was 
pretty tough, to be fair. And then, and then when you're out of the team, you've got the class of 92 coming into the first teams. And you're still a young man yourself. You're just a few years old, older than these guys. So, like, what, do you remember, say, like, the early days of Beckham and, you know, Skulls and all that, those players? Like, had you seen them coming through? And did were you aware of how good they all were? Yeah, there, there was... There was there was lots of talk about the players that were coming through and, and which players were going to do well. And David Beckham would be because he's from London. We'd, we'd go and play in London, and David Beckham and, and his dad Ted would be in the dressing room before a game, saying hello to everyone and getting stuff signed and things. He would be in the dressing room in at Old Trafford on school holidays when he was up there training. So David Beckham was always around the dressing room from being I don't know I'm going to say 12, 13, something like that. So so we knew of David Beckham. We sort of got to know about Paul Scholes, Nicky Butt, the Nevilles. I think Ben Thornley was one as well. Robbie Savage was obviously involved in that. Uh, so, so there are a lot of good players in that group that a lot was expected of. And around this time, there's like one of the most famous things that happens to you at Man U is uh, you go out for a night on the town and then um, there's a knock at the door and it's uh, Alex Ferguson has come to... <laughs> Uh, who's keeps keeps tabs on his players? So it's a, it's a Thursday night, I think it is, and we don't play till Sunday. So the letter of the law is you're not allowed out onto licensed premises 48 hours before kickoff. Right. So we're sort of just about in the timeline. Uh, we're sort of bending rules, not breaking them. So we think we'll go out for a couple of quiet pints. Um, and, and I've got my house in South Manchester. Giggs has come round with a with a few of his mates that he knocks around with from school. There's half a dozen of the apprentices there that are probably a year below me. So they're probably like second-year apprentices come first-year pros. Uh, there's a few girls that Giggs' mates have brought along with them, and we're all getting ready to go out. And there's a knock at the door. I think it's a taxi driver. And one of the and one of the lads comes upstairs. I'm putting the finishing touches to my hairdo, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, is that, that's that taxi. He went, no, 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 you'll never guess who's at the door. I went, what? He went, it's the manager. I went, no, 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 no. <laughs> I said, I said, it'll be a taxi driver that looks like the manager. I said, just jump in the cab and I'll follow you down there. He's like, no, no, it's the manager. So I sort of peer over the stairs and there's the manager with his red face, coughing and spitting with his hands flapping. Get your sharp, get your ass in this living room with his gigs. Get every one of these fuckers out of this house. I want to murder you two now. So the manager's then stood at the door, smashing everyone around the head, booting them up the backside, telling them to F off. Sits me and Giggsy down, gives us the, the rollicking of our lives. Uh, says, right, I'll see you in my office at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. I'm not finished with you two. So he drives off, Giggsy drives home. I got on the phone to mum and dad. I said, uh, I think I'm getting the sack in the morning. Uh, we're in massive trouble. And then we went in the morning and he just said the same. He bollocked us both again. So we were letting our team down, letting our families down, letting this down, letting that down. Um, now get out of my office. I've got a team to pick for, for Sunday. Keep out of trouble. And did you make it into the team? Uh, I think Giggsy played on the Sunday. I think I was sub. But what, what was he coming round? Was he just a random check? Or did he come round often? No, no. Do you know what? I, I've always thought, how, how did he ever find out? And then it was about 12 months ago, someone said to me, it was Giggsy's mum that rang him and said, oh, Ryan's just gone round to Leeds with a load of mates. I'm not sure whether you want to go and get him. What? Bloody hell. Yeah. <laughs> well, I saw this quote from Steve Bruce that said, it's not like going out, it wasn't like you were especially bad. It was just that you always got caught. Would you say that was fair? There's no two ways about it. We weren't particularly bad. We weren't doing anything that any other player wasn't doing. It was just that we were single. The other players yeah. would go out with the wives. We went out with a couple of lads. We went out to probably louder, larrier places. They would go to a restaurant, get drunk and have a bite to eat. We'd go to a club. You've got to remember back back in the day, Nightclubs closed at two. 
So you weren't out till four, five, six, seven in the morning. You you had finished at two. So yeah. I, I know that's late for, for an athlete in a football. You shouldn't be out until that time, whatever. But, you know, Sundays was 10.30 last orders. You couldn't get in anywhere on a Sunday. Yeah. Um, so so it, was a, it was a lot more innocent of a time. I just think it was we were doing things that were probably a little bit more publicised at the time because of the, the Premier League. And then, man, you do win the league after 26 years. That night when you win the league must have been incredible, mustn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, that was that was unbelievably special. I mean, uh, the, the year before, we'd lost the last first division to Leeds, yeah. which was so close and we should have won it. And, and we sort of put that down to everybody getting a little bit nervous, um, the manager included. So we, we vowed the season after that that wouldn't happen again. Brian Robson stood up and said, that's not going to happen again. So to win it was was incredible. I'd, obviously, I won it from the armchair in my living room because Oldham scored against Villa and, and Villa were our near, nearest rivals. So I'm sort of ringing the lads saying, what do we do, what do we do? And obviously, everyone's on the phone to everyone else. Couldn't get through to anyone. My mum and dad are sat there. They went, I know, there was something going on at Old Trafford. I thought, oh, good idea, we'll get down there. My God, good idea. I get down there. <laughs> There's about 300 fans all like jumping and singing. I'm jumping around with these. Next minute, there's about 3,000 fans and they're throwing me in the air and throwing me across there. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get killed. Next minute, security's had to come in and like get me away from all the crowd and take me into the ground, across the pitch, across to the other side and get me out and get me mum and dad to pick me up from the other side of the ground. It's like, I'm going to get killed. <laughs> there was, I think it's, I was, was it that Premier League documentary I was watching on BBC about six months ago? There's a, the game after that, when Man U have won the league, you've all been out, I don't know if you played in that game, you've all been out the night before and the whole team was hung over. So obviously the night it happened, everybody ended up at Bruce's house. Everybody's getting drunk and celebrating. Then we're coming for the game and the gaffer's like, listen, I know you're all hung over, I know you're all at it last night. We've got 50,000 fans out there. He said, let's not finish on a, on a defeat. And we go out and everybody's laughing and joking. We go out one nil down at half time. He comes in the manager and starts ripping into everyone. Uh, <laughs> listen, you, you can fuck your holidays if you think you're going to lose it. So we, we go out and we, we win 3 1. And of course, Gary Pallister scores his only goal of the season and we end on a high. So. Still Cantona. Robson. Tackled right on the edge of that penalty area. Now, this could be a fitting finale to a very special night indeed. We've already seen Ryan Giggs drive a free kick past Bobby Mims in the first half. An injury time at the end of the game. It's there! Pallister, the only player who hasn't scored a goal in this Manchester United team. Scores with what's probably going to be the last kick of the match. And I'm sure they called Pallister forward because he was the only one who hadn't scored a goal for Manchester United this season. But he has now. Let's talk about the end of your United career because I guess I don't think many people know that it was actually you handed in a transfer request at the end in 96. Do you, do you regret that? Do you, do you wish you'd have stayed a bit longer? Uh, yes and no. I, I wish I, I wish I'd done because I, I love the club, I love the lads, I love the team. Obviously, we were still being successful, um, but I, I just felt I'd had enough of Fergie and and the way he was treating me, and and, and I was still, you know, in and out of the team. Not quite. I, I couldn't work out why I was playing bad one week and really good the next, and I wasn't getting any any help from him. So I just thought it's time to go somewhere else and try pastures new. And 
maybe if someone buys me for a few quid, then they might be on my side a little bit more. Yeah. Have you seen him much since? No, I, I saw, no, I don't see him often. I, I saw him uh, a couple of years ago at the Man United Golfers Golf Day, uh, and he briefly sort of said a. He didn't want to look at me, but sort of said hello as he was walking past. <laughs> but the time before that, he actually completely blanked me. Whoa, no, that's insane. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, to, I mean, uh, after I'd finished, after I'd left United, he sort of said to me, listen, you, you've, been, you've never been in any trouble at this club. Thanks for your services. If ever you need anything, you know we're here. And obviously when I retired, I did a book and put in the book that he was a bully. Uh, and, and, I, and I'd heard he'd fell out of me because of that. And then uh, we were doing the... Player of the Year awards, Manchester United at, the, at Old Trafford, and me and Lou Macari were on MUTV, and the manager was coming down to do an interview, and they asked us to step aside so Fergie could go on. And he came down the stairs, saw Lou Macari stood next, he walked straight past me, shook Lou Macari's hand and said hello, and then went onto the set and just totally blanked me. Oh no, what? That is still mad. That is oh, so mad. mad. I love that you're laughing telling that story. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, well, I just think it's quite funny. Yeah, I think it's quite it's, funny that he's, he's such that, that the big I am is, is, and that's how he behaves. He, did, yeah. <laughs> he does bear a grudge, doesn't he? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you didn't get much of Howard Wilkinson. He was gone quite soon after you joined, wasn't he? But what was that like swapping Ferguson for Howard Wilkinson, another person who's quite a kind of sergeant major? Yeah, but obviously because I'd seen big name players and big money players come into United and see them get treated differently to what the lads that had come to the ranks were treated. Right. I sort of knew that football was a bit like that. So when I went to Leeds under Howard, <clears throat> I mean, Howard, to be fair to him, had had a poor season the season before and was trying to change things when I got there. So Ian Rush had come from Liverpool to do a bit of coaching, bring a bit of the Liverpool pass and move ethos. He'd brought Lee Bowie for a bit of energy midfield, Nigel Martin, the goalkeeper. So there was, there was a few of us that had come in to change things up a little bit. Uh, and, and, and after I got there, Howard just said to me, you know, I think he was there a month, Howard, before he got the sack while I was there. And after about three weeks, he said to me, listen, son, he said, uh, I know I've paid a lot of money for you. I knew you were good, but I didn't know you were this good. He said, get yourself fit. The left-hand side of the pitch is yours. Go out there, enjoy yourself, take people on, score some goals, get yourself in the England squad. He said, enjoy your football. He said, I I'm really glad you're here. And I sort of shook my hands and was like, I think I've just landed in heaven. And then I think we played Man United the week after the beat was 4 0 and he got the sack. So that was the end of that. What was George Graham like? George was, uh, well, well, I thought, do you know what? I thought, do you know what? I've, I've had Alex Ferguson. George Graham, I'm guessing, is very similar. Yeah. Um, if, if I toe the line, if I cover the ground and do the work and, and just play well, there's not a lot he can say to me. And to be fair to George, he came in, was really defensive. In training, things were defensive. The way we played was defensive. And as, as an offensive wide man midfielder, uh, it, it was really tough to play. And he had everyone playing man for man, which was outrageous at times. Uh, and as good as we were defensively, we really didn't have a chance going forward. And it, it, was, it was really dour the first season. I mean, George came in after about five games and we were sat mid-table with a team full of internationals. And George came in. Remember, we've only played five games. He went, right, first things first, lads. We're going to avoid relegation. <laughs> and we all went, what? We've played five games. Like, be careful what you ask for. And we ended up coming fourth from bottom. We just about oh, avoided relegation. Wow. So the next season, um, I thought, Do you know what? I'm going to, uh, I did a little bit myself close season to get to, to get myself a little bit fitter to go back to pre-season. I thought, I'm not going to listen to him because he's very stuck in the 80s and stuck in his ways. I'll do all his defensive bits 
and then I'm just going to do my, my own thing going forward. Um, and pre-season, I come back flying. Uh, and, and the week before the season started, on the Friday, he came to me and said, listen, you've been far and away our best player pre-season. He said, let's get you flying again. Let's get you back in the England team. Let's get you back scoring goals. He said, we'll have a really strong season out of here. I went, yeah, thank you. I said, that's great. Just what I wanted to hear. We played Forest on the Saturday, our last pre-season game before the season started. And I snapped my cruise ship. Oh. So, I was out for, so I was out for the whole season. Oh. What's it like? When you've got you've got a season, then what do you do with your time? It must be tough to keep mentally strong in that situation. Yeah, that, that's that's the toughest time. I mean, a, a long injury like that is is really tough. I don't think at the time Leeds probably had enough people in the medical room to to look after everybody. So so obviously with a cruciate and a year long injury, there are also other players with with long term injuries. So they get sort of shoved to the side while they're dealing week to week with players that have got niggles that are going to be fit this Saturday, fit yeah, next yeah. Saturday. So you don't really get the attention that you probably need. And and I can certainly hold my hands up. So I probably wasn't as disciplined with my rehab because I didn't have the help and didn't have someone over yeah. me going, do this, do this, do this. So you do a little bit, you don't do quite enough here, you do this, you do not quite enough there. Towards the end of your career, you suffered a lot more with injuries. How much of that is to do with the fact you were playing for Torquay at 16 years old in the fourth division. You know, you played a lot of football by the time you kind of hit your late 20s. Did that have take its toll, basically? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know whether it's a chicken and egg thing. I don't, I don't know whether the injuries come because you've played a lot of football at a young age while your bones are still growing and while you're developing and whether that makes a difference or whether you just get a little bit unfortunate in certain things. I mean, injuries are just part of... Some players go years and years without injuries. Some people just pick them up for no reason at all and... And it's not like, you know, at United we had an unbelievable physio. Um, at Leeds we had a, a, another really good physio. So so they, they know what they're talking about. It's just that some injuries take more toll on your body than others. Uh, and, and for me being, I suppose, my predominant gift was my pace. So, so as soon as you start losing, you know, a quarter of a yard there, half a yard there, and you're not quite as electric and as quick as you used to be, without thinking about changing your game, you, you're a bit scuppered. One of the uh, most interesting kind of small spells you have at the end is you go to Sampdoria. David Platt tempts you out there. Was that a fun trip to Italy? Like, did you watch Football Italia before that? I watched a little bit of Football Italia. I always thought that Italian football would be quite an interesting um, league to play in. Uh, But but again, there's a running theme here. David Platt was only there a month as well before he got the sack. (laughs) (laughs) So David Platt calls me up and says, listen, I've done, he tried to get me at Arsenal, to be fair, David Platt, when he was there. Um, and uh, so I'd like you to come over to Sam Dory, win a relegation battle. I was like, well, he said, that was your knee because he knew I'd done my cruise shit. I said, well, my knee's absolutely fine. I said, obviously, I'm not match fit and, and my quad and my hamstring my muscles are still a little bit down because I'm still doing the work to, to build them back up. He said, that's fine. I'll take a half fit Lee Sharp over some of these players. Let's get you over here and, and we'll give you a fitness program and we'll build your leg up and we'll get you fit and this I was like okay brilliant so I go there and I'm in Genoa um, hardly anybody speaks English Platy was probably the only bloke in the dressing room that spoke English uh, so it was a pretty lonely place there on my own and then he left uh, after like a month because the, the Italian coaches were hounding him because he hadn't got his coaching badges and he left without telling me he did a team meeting in the dressing room at the training ground. I'm outside just kicking a ball around, getting warm for training. I'm thinking, where's all the lads? They're a bit, they're a bit late. <laughs> so, and then they start straggling out about 20 minutes later and we're warming up and all the lads are laughing. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> and one of them, one of them in broken English is like, ah, oh, you, you speak to David? 
I was like, no, no, no. He went, oh, David's gone. I went, what? <laughs> he went, David's gone. I was like, oh, what? So, so we train and, and I get off and I, I, I listen to my answer phone message and, and Platt is on there giving me a message saying, Sharpie, sorry I didn't get a chance to talk to you, um, but I've had to resign or I've had to leave. Uh, it's a great opportunity for you, this, this and this, good luck. I was like, oh, thanks. And then, <laughs> and then they, they, they bring the old manager back, Spalletti, who was there before Platty, and he comes in and says, listen, I don't know you. I've got my players. You won't be playing, so I don't know if you want to leave or not. It's entirely up to you. So that's when the transfer deadline was like middle of March. So I was like, or end of March. I was like, right, try and, try and get me home because I'm not going to play here. Oh, man. And then you had a great little spell at Bradford, like one of the great, the greatest, one of the greatest spells in their entire history. Um, getting them into the top flight for the first time ever. That, that was, must have been a great time. It, it was, it was an unbelievable time. Uh, I think because I'd just been through a, a, a sort of tough time at the end of Leeds and um, the Sampdoria thing, and, and it all finished a little bit unpleasant. To go to Bradford uh, to start with on loan when they were sort of top two in the Championship, chasing automatic promotion, was a real buzz in the dressing room and. Uh, great to be around, and then, and then for them to be in the Premier League, and some of the players that they had there when we were in the Premier League: Stan Collymore, Benito Carboni, Dean Saunders. What a dressing room it was there! It was absolutely incredible. First goal on an extraordinary day of destiny. Wolves ahead at Molyneux with a header from Havard Flow. Ipswich though was shooting on sight at Portman Road. Jim Magilton sending Suffolk spirits soaring. Back in the black country, Peter Beagree restored Bradford's morale with a superb strike. And not to be outdone, Ipswich matched that in class and execution, with Scowcroft rising majestically for his 14th of the season. But with fans at both games glued to their earpieces, Bradford took the lead with a characteristic strike from Lee Mills. And even Kieran Dyer's elegant lob couldn't lift the half-time gloom at Portman Road. By now, the irony of the situation was sinking in on the Ipswich bench. For all their enterprise, it was Bradford on their way to the Premiership. Sheffield United sensed that unease, Donis poaching their only goal. Meanwhile, at Molyneux, Robbie Blake, 17th of the season, had Paul Jewell dancing on the touchline. By the time the news had filtered back to Suffolk, there were few nails left to chew. And even a missed penalty from Beagree at Molyneux failed to change the course of events. Ipswich's fourth from Naylor was greeted with almost lukewarm applause. Those same fans there were roaring their heads off when news came through of a second goal for Wolves, though Simpson looked offside. When the same player's free kick smacked against the upright minutes later, Paul Jules' sigh said it all. By now, even the Ipswich faithful were watching the final seconds at Molyneux. But in the end, Bradford were up. And even these distraught Ipswich fans will salute a remarkable achievement for Paul Jewell's side. Last last couple of questions. We've got to mention this. You're following the footsteps of Vinnie Samways, who had Samways Bar in Spain. You've got Sharpie's Bar in Spain. It looks absolutely amazing. Do many Lee Shop fan club members stop by for a drink? I don't know about being in the fan club, but certainly we were fans around that time. I, I was in there, uh, what day is today? Tuesday. I was in there Sunday, and some guy came into me with a picture that was taken 30 years ago. This guy was six. Oh, I was wow. like 21 or something. 
Um, so we had a picture taken to to have the same sort of photo, but just to <laughs> just to put next to each other. So yeah, we're still we're still getting. Listen, nineties football is nineties football. I don't think it's ever going away. I think it's a great era to be involved with. It's the best. And long may it continue. I, I love it. The fans are great when they come in. So we always end with the same question, which is: if you could go back, well, we'd, we'll go slightly before nineteen ninety. If you go back to your sixteenth birthday and do it all again, would you? Oh God, yeah, yeah. And I, and I wouldn't change a lot either. <laughs> <laughs> You're loved by our listeners. Thank you so much for doing it, Lee. Oh, it's been you. a genuine pleasure. No, thank you. It's been fun. Much appreciated. Thanks so much. Good luck, lads. There we go. That was Lee Sharp and uh, Josh. Every time you tell stories from Devon... It feels like they happened a hundred years earlier. What do you mean? <laughs> My parents bought a horse off one of You've your. Got You've got to ask. You've got to ask. Who's buying that? This really who's sums up what Devon. Dev- <laughs> what do you mean? That is what you mean. I tell you who's buying a horse. Alex Ferguson, and that is why, man, you are now owned by the Glazers. So that's the problem there, mate. If Alex Ferguson hadn't bought a horse. Man, you would have won the league in the last decade. There's, there's your sliding doors moment. Devon is such a feudal society. Oh, we've been buying a horse off your mate. Brilliant. That was a great... How yeah. good was Lee? How good was Lee? Oh, he was brilliant, wasn't he? Absolutely I brilliant. I want to sign up for the Lee Sharp fan club. If you, you can't do that, you could sign up for the Critley Kevin fan club because his answers about which are asked from our fan club uh, questions on Eric Cantona uh, attacking the fan and also on his time in Iceland are two of the most astonishing answers we've received in a while. Thank you to Lee for doing that. It's an absolute pleasure. Yes, the extended Lee Sharp episode is available on the Quickly Kevin fan club at anotherslice.com forward slash quickly Kevin. And we've got lots more bonus episodes this month and loads and loads of extra bonus episodes from the past on there available too. Head over to anotherslice.com forward slash quickly Kevin to subscribe. Right, quick quiz? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what, quiz-wise, as part of the Lee Sharp fan club ourselves, let's theme it around Lee Sharp and one of the great games he talks about, Man U winning the Cup Winners' Cup final. I think it is a good one for starting eleven because you've got you've got Manchester United, you've also got a classic Barcelona team. Right, Manchester United versus Barcelona, the 1991 Cup Winners' Cup final. You both can have one wrong answer. Michael, as the Man U fan, would you like to start us off? Should we let Chris go first, as I've got a home advantage? Okay, yeah, Chris. Lee Sharp. <laughs> Correct. Uh, Mark Hughes. Correct. It's a good team, this Man U team, actually. Paul Parker? Oh, God. Incorrect. Do you know why it wasn't Paul Parker? Because the man you were slamming earlier was so versatile, he could also <laughs> play right back to the yeah. same level, Dennis Irwin. Correct. I might show, I showboat and go for a Barcelona player, right? Ronald Koeman? Correct. Uh, the left back was Clayton Blackmore. Correct. Um, Brian Robson. Correct. Uh, Steve Bruce. Correct. Really struggling now. 91. Jim Layton. Incorrect. You've lost. Uh, Michael, would you like to wipe up any names as a. Uh, Les Seeley was in goal. Yeah, Les Seeley was in goal. Really? Uh, Did you say Brian McClare? No, but he was there. And then... Uh, the only one Mike, you're looking for is Mike, Mike Feeling. Yeah, Mike, Mike Feeling, yeah. 
any Barcelona. Can I just say, Man U's bench? I mean, that's a good first eleven, but their bench is catastrophic. <laughs> <laughs> Mal Donaghy, Gary Walsh, Neil Webb, Mark Robinson, Danny Wallace. That is that. Uh, Danny Wallace was a decent player. They didn't have a huge amount of strength in depth. I'm quite interested at Barcelona's team. Shall I run you through them? Yeah. Michael Laudrup is my only guess for Barcelona. Yeah, that is correct. Goalkeeper, and I'm just checking. Yeah, is a guy called Carlos Busquets, who is the dad of Sergio Busquets. Really? That's wow. fascinating. Good then knowledge. a player called Nando, Jose Ramon Alexenko, Coman, Albert Ferrer, ended up in the Premier League, Jose Maria Becero. John Andoni Goicochea. Goicochea. Eusebio. Julio Salinas. Michael Laudrop. And uh, currently, maybe at Man City, I've never known how to pronounce this. Is it Zicky Begarastain? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Pep's, Pep's right hand man, the director of football guy. Yeah, so he's there. Pep's not in that team. I suppose he hasn't come through by that point. There we go. Yeah. Manager Johan Cruyff. That's interesting that your dad was a goalkeeper and you didn't become a goalkeeper. That's weird, that, isn't it? Yeah. I wouldn't have thought there's enough time between Carlos and Sergio Busquets. I mean, what a load of things we've learned today. Thank you very much for listening. Back next week. Oh, it's a good episode, isn't it? Jeff Norcott, who we didn't realise, is basically followed Wimbledon throughout the 80s and 90s, was a programme seller, went to the FA Cup final. It's an incredible episode about an incredible story a club we haven't talked about enough in my opinion and in honor of dennis Irwin to play out the show come on you reds by manchester united which must be about the 15th time we've been <laughs> on this podcast but i don't care see you next week chris until then Stuart slater see you later 